If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong. Previously on Surviving Y2K. The numbers on the calendar are not mere numbers. I think that civilization as we know it is not going to come to an end. If Y2K were this weekend instead of 76 weekends from now, it would. It's about the day-to-day fabric of society completely failing. It's a problem. It's a problem. You've got to admit this is a problem. This was the perfect scam. Every month from 97, 98, 99, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Paul Revere. That was my basic role. You got a problem, you got a problem, you got a problem, and then you shift from Paul Revere to salesman. Well, what if, and that's what the whole essence of the Y2K hoax was, that little sliver in your brain, but, but what if? And some believe that all of the signs are of the bleakest sort. And if we do not repent, if we do not change our ways, then we are destined to disappear. It's raining. The roads are slick. My producer Henry and I are driving on the very edge of Washington State on a peninsula in the Pacific that is getting disconcertingly thin the farther we go. We're on our way to meet Susan and Tom, a couple who spent years preparing themselves for Y2K disaster. And not just themselves, they made a living prepping other preppers. One expects certain things upon meeting preppers. Militia mentality, paranoia, guns. But we don't expect... Snossages. Nice to meet you, Henry. Nice to meet you. I'm handing you a dog treat because we have two dogs and they are going to expect a treat when you come in, so you have to make them sit. Good boy, girl, girl. Nice sit. Their house is small and packed. A pellet stove keeps it warm. Flocks of cranes and clusters of stars hang from the ceiling. Susan's origami. She does every night. She sits there and folds. That's what all the papers are. Very quiet activity. It is. Tom doesn't get up to greet us. He's sunk into an old lazy boy in the corner under a sign that says an old bear and his honey live here, which seems true. The old bear has a wool cap on his head and a toe sticking out of a hole in his sock. But who cares? He's got bigger Um, fish to fry. um, You guys in the middle of a Scrabble game? Well, we're kind of... Who sits here? That's me. You're in trouble. I'm in bad trouble. (laughs) Scrabble playing, origami folding, dog treat feeding, lazy boy lounging survivalists. Clearly, they've softened in the years since the millennium. And that's exactly what they want you to think. I suspect it's no coincidence that you sit in the corner. Correct. And you haven't you haven't gotten up since we've been here. Uh-huh. You know, they say if somebody attacks you, you're going to grab the first thing to your right. What's it going to be? Holy <laughs> shit, that's an axe. I was getting ready for something bigger than Y2K was just like this thing in the road that suddenly showed up and, it, and it made gave, me start getting ready. It gave us it gave us a time. My end objective was not Y2K. What do you mean? We're not out of the woods yet. The shit's coming. We're not done. Here's the thing about the end of the world. It's also going to be the beginning of another. 
And maybe that one? Maybe that one will be better. Today on Surviving Y2K, New Year's Eve gets closer. And we meet the people who weren't trying to avoid the apocalypse. They were running right toward it and toward the world that would be thereafter. I'm Dan Taberski, and this is Surviving Y2K. Episode 2, 1999. If you were walking in January of 99 in Times Square, past a newsstand, you would for sure see the cover of Time magazine up there, front and center. The cover of Time was a big deal then with that iconic red border, framing what was important that week, what we should all be thinking about. Time Magazine on January 18th, 1999? It's their Y2K issue. All about the bug that's coming in months now, not years. And the cover? A street scene of total chaos. An apocalyptic version of the intersection we're on right now. Dark skies, fearful onlookers, you can practically hear the panicked horns honking. And in the center of this image, on the cover of Time Magazine, one of the world's most respected news institutions, is a sign that contains the headline. The end of the world. Will computers melt down? Will society? So, no. Cooler heads will not prevail in the next 12 months before the millennium. In fact, it's a paranoia free-for-all. Silo triggered by the first minute of the new year. There's a Y2K movie where the bug triggers a nuclear missile threatening mankind. That sounds suspiciously like a Y2K malfunction. Yes, General. The survival of millions hangs in the balance. There's a Y2K made for TV movie where the bug triggers a nuclear power plant meltdown threatening mankind. Go, everybody out! Even I pitched in. In the Daily Show's continuing search for millennial hype, We've stumbled upon one truly terrifying scenario. I was a producer at The Daily Show back then, and I directed a field segment about people manufacturing briefcases that turn into toilets in case their plumbing fails because of the bug. A mass toilet malfunction is coming on like a runaway train. I don't know. It seemed funny at the time. But the guy who captured Y2K zeitgeist better than anyone in 1999? As always, the man, the myth, the legend... What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? Keanu Reeves. Mr. Anderson. The Matrix comes out March of that year. And it's not even technically about Y2K. The gist of the movie? The world we know isn't real. It's virtual. A trick. By computers, who in reality have enslaved the human race. Humans at the mercy of technology, personified by menacing pale white guys with sunglasses and receding hairlines which basically describes me, in case you were wondering. And then there's kung fu and leather trench coats, and it's good. It's just good. You should watch it again. But watch this scene in particular. Blue pill, red pill. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. The Wykowskis who directed it were really onto something here. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Two versions of the truth. It's the perfect distillation of what was happening with Y2K. So let me paint the picture here. It's 1999. You're driving. It's late. You just spilled coffee all over those new stonewashed jeans. God, 
damn it. And on the radio, guys with deep voices are jabbering with the folks who call in from Montana, North Dakota, Missouri. Uh, A lot of people are just really uh, joining us this hour. It's the heyday of alternative radio. This is For the People, a show broadcasting out of Florida. Ken Klein is on the line. They talk about UFOs or Ruby Ridge or NAFTA. But you start to notice them bring up something else, too. And we're talking about the Y2K problem and the future of this nation. Uh, Just once in a while, first. 13 out of 24 federal government agencies, key federal government agencies, will not complete their Y2K work by January the 1st, 2000. But pretty soon, that's all they talk about. There's meltdowns or something with the Russian power plants. We're in trouble. This is a show called New Dimensions from 1999. If we think we had trouble with Chernobyl, this could be gigantic. Folks with a lot of windshield time, they could soak up hours of this stuff. Yeah. So they're not quite telling us how serious it might be. Yeah. No one wants to be blamed for causing the panic. That's right. Now, to be fair, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback these things. But at the time, no one really knows what's going to happen. And while most see the Y2K bug as, you know, a problem, we need to fix it, that giant question mark waiting to be answered on January 1st, it energizes a whole community of people who don't just expect the apocalypse, they want it to happen. People who see it as a way to wipe the slate clean and start again. But right here, I made a very primitive field kitchen. Mm-hmm. So we can put our propane and all that in here, and the refrigerator does work. I'm back with Tom and Susan, the survivalists. Tom has gotten out of his lazy boy, reluctantly, and away from his axe, thankfully, to give me the grand tour of their backyard. Come on, quickly, come and get dressed. Their two dogs are at our heels, wearing matching sweatshirts that Susan made herself. Come on. They just moved to this place a few years ago and have since been slowly building up the yard with sheds and food stashes and crawl spaces, all just in case. They have thought of everything. Yes, I did. Amazing. What kind of cactus is it? This is called San Pedro, and it has more mescaline than mescaline. What does that mean? That means you can go on a journey. Can we do it? No. No, I mean, I don't want to do it, but like, how would one do it? You got to take the inside of the skin off. Uh You dry that, and then you put it in little pills and... Hot damn, you people are fun. Off you go. They hauled that cactus with them from Southern California, outside San Diego, where they met and lived for decades, and where they prepared themselves for Y2K apocalypse. But not out of fear. For them, it was just the opposite. I think in our wildest dreams, because we were 18 years younger than we are now, in our wildest dreams it was really going to crash. And we were going to go out in the woods naked with a knife and we were going to live the rest of our lives out there doing what we always wanted to do. The seed for all this was planted over a decade earlier on Leatherman Peak in Idaho where Tom screwed up. We get to the top of the mountain and you know we're all standing up there taking pictures and doing whatnot and I set my pack down in the snow. I mean, it's steep. It's like this. And you're just standing there and the wind's blowing and it's just, you know, it's... I went to grab the pack and it went clunk. And I went, oh, shit. And we all just stood there and we watched it roll away and away and away down the hill, gone. And with it, 
his supplies, his food, his water. And he was at a total loss. What do you do? What do you eat out here was my first thought. Wrongly, of course. Why wrongly? Because in a survival situation, that's the last thing you worry about is what to eat. What's the first thing? The environment. The environment's going to kill you long before you starve to death. The wind, the rain, the cold, the snow. The heat. The bears, the bugs, marauding bandits, whatever it is, your environment is going to kill you off rapidly. You need shelter, water, fire, and food. Four basic necessities. don't need anything else. After that scare on Leatherman Peak, they dive into studying survival and preparation. But they approach it not from the right, with militias and black helicopters and government overthrow, but from the left, with nature and being good stewards to the earth, and a little bit of government overthrow. They open a wilderness school in a geodesic dome they build themselves in the hills outside San Diego. How to build shelter, find water, how to forage for food. The more granular, the more back to basics, the better. Like tanning hides. You tan the hide with the brains of the animal. You, you know, mash up the eyeballs and the brains, and, and that's what you smear on the hides to make it pliant. Eyeballs and brains are what makes it. Yeah, yeah. We did coyote. Did the did fur. A raccoon. Raccoon. Deer. Yeah. And then one day I had a good idea that maybe I would try a cow. So I went to the butcher and I That's got... That's a bad idea. It was a bad idea. But it's, like, it's like trying to tan a sofa. Yeah, I mean, it it's just massive. It's just so much work. We lived a pretty intense life. Slept outside for about 10 years. Slept what? outside. Wait, you slept outside every night? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We never wore shoes. Never wore shoes. Never. We were in the dirt. It's, it's what we did. It's how we lived all of those years. It was what made us whole. Free of technology and the complexity of the modern world. Their own little bubble. And then, one of their survival students, a computer technician back in the city, brings rumors about a bug. And we said, well, what's that? Disaster is coming. Every man for himself. And they are down. This is their jam. This whole thing turns to shit. Nobody's coming to help you. The school had a new focus. And it was this. I don't want you to just sit there and say, oh my God, this terrible thing's going to happen. I'm going to die. We wanted to get you excited about the fact that maybe it'd be fun. The survival school takes off. And all that prepping they did, the years of tanning hides and building shelters, it's not so nutty anymore, is it? It's know-how. The skills they have, people want and will pay for. And it's Tom and Susan's chance to take their world and make it the whole world. They flew in from all over the country. I mean, these people came from all over the world. And it's not just desk jockeys learning to rub two sticks together. They have serious clients. Sure enough, this fellow signed up for class and his address was Coronado. So Tom asks, What do you do? He said, I'm in the Navy. I'm a combat medic. For what? Uh, SEAL Team 3. Uh -huh. Wait a minute. So Navy SEALs are coming to take survival classes yes. from yes. you guys? Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. It was very cool. The format was kind of a shock immersion type thing. People show up with suitcases and hat boxes and stuff like that, to which Tom says, Ladies and gentlemen, you get to keep 10 things. 10 things. The rest of it stays on that side of the road. And I said, tomorrow, I'm taking two of them away. 
Well, by the end of the fourth day, they've only got two things left or three things left. But now they've got spears, they've got throwing sticks, they have no shoes on their feet, feathers in their hair, they're dirty, they're just like, they don't care anymore. All of this money we were getting from these people coming to our classes, well, I reinvested it in food and stuff to get ready. The, the Apache scouts had scout pits, is what they were called. And they were like, for them, they were like their hotel rooms. They were about a day's journey apart from each other. And they were uh, under the ground, undetectable from the surface. Well, I have scout pits. I got in Mexico, I got some at our house. What do you and, mean you have it in Mexico? You have, you buried stuff in Mexico? Yeah. <laughs> in the mountains of Baja, there are scout pits with, my name on them and they're full of stuff still yeah like i could keep 200 people alive for probably 10 years with the amount of shit i got down there lots and lots of stuff even stranger susan has scout pits in mexico too separate ones so she has her secret stash i don't know where they're at but henry is not having that wait why, the, why don't you just tell each other well, that was her insurance policy and my insurance policy. <laughs> she, they, she couldn't reveal where all of mine right. was, and I. It, it you was never know who your enemies are going to be in Y two K. Exactly correct. It's literally every exactly man. Exactly correct. <laughs> this went on for five years. I mean, this was all I did. You know, seal up food, dig holes, bury it. Did you go too far? Did you become? I don't want to say insane. Absolutely. Yeah. Hoping, really believing, that that day that was approaching, that day so many were dreading, would be their turning point. Their day one. On December 31st, we were sleeping outside. We outside. And we had the radio on. And we were listening. 13 out of 24 federal government agencies. It was interesting because we had a, a, a drop dead time. I mean, literally, there was, you know, it's going to happen at midnight. We were expecting the end of the world. Susan and Tom aren't alone, of course, in waiting to see what happens on New Year's Eve. While they're listening to the radio in the dirt in the hills outside San Diego, Dave Eddy the computer coder from last time, the guy who coined Y2K. He's holed up in a living history village, waiting for the lights to go out. And Bob Loblaw, up in Canada, he just cracked a beer, staring at his computer monitors, waiting to see if he's right, if this whole Y2K bug thing is a scam, a racket. But before we get there, to New Year's and the new millennium, and find out what happened to each of them, we're gonna throw a few more people into this mosh pit. Coming up, God. Henry and I have just arrived in Michigan at an old farmhouse. It's mud season up here, but the goats and the ducks and the crazy looking chickens, they don't seem to mind the mess. The woman we're here to see is bounding out of the house holding a beanie baby? A black, squirmy, beanie baby. Oh yeah, that's our baby kitten. She was just born. Like literally just, just born. Just born, yeah. 
with a moist black noggin and white paws the size of jelly beans. Yeah, her mom just finished cleaning her up. She's cutting the umbilical cord with the other kitten right now. With her so, teeth? Yeah, and they eat the placenta and everything, so oh, there's no... Oh, for hell, Jesus. over. Oh, you're just a kitty. The kitten has no name yet, but the woman, her name is Adair Levon. And it's strange to be talking with her about this new life, a new beginning, because so many of her 50-odd years on Earth have been so completely driven by the end. Oh, yeah, the Adventist church is always teaching that, you know, the end is going to come. I remember when I was in, it was either seventh or eighth grade, that the teacher at the Adventist school I was at said um, to our group, there's no way the world is going to last longer than 10 years. No way. He said that in the end, there would only be one true Adventist out of every 10. And there were 20 there. And he said, there's only going to be two of you that are going to make it. So where are you going to be in 10 years? Are you going to be one of those two from this classroom that are going to make it? So there's always this end time scenario in the Adventist religion that you're preparing for the end. And you're always looking for the next sign. Now, in the year 2000, where are you going to be? Is it going to be a peaceful millennium? Or is it going to be a dark age of doomsday thundering down upon us? That's what I want to preach on tonight. Everybody say amen. This is a recording from the 90s of an evangelical preacher in Lufkin, Texas. Now, many believe the beginning of the end has already happened. The great earthquakes of the 60s and 70s improved. As preppers and survivalists saw Y2K as their big moment and made it their rallying cry, the real fire and brimstone churches grabbed hold even tighter. It's not just prediction, it's prophecy. The scariest parts of the Bible about to come true. We said it was going to happen, and here it comes. What I'm trying to do tonight is give you a mathematical probability and tell you you're not going to make it. You will not make it to the year 2000. Everybody say amen. Are you with me here? In 1993, Time and CNN pulled this question. Will the second coming of Jesus Christ occur sometime around the year 2000? 20% said yes. The rapture, judgment day, the four horsemen, all of it. One in five said, yep, it's coming in the year 2000. But Adair Levon and her family did those one in fivers one better. They didn't just believe it was coming, they acted on it. In the mid-90s, Adair and her husband and her three kids were living in a converted hunting lodge an hour or two outside of Detroit, depending on traffic. Churchgoers, homeschoolers, family people. But gradually their faith began to consume them. You know, you think you're hearing voices telling you to do things. It was one of those situations. Is that good or bad or scary? Um, I think it's just kind of confusing. And the voices they heard were telling them the second coming was coming at the millennium. And it would happen in Jerusalem. And if he was coming, they decided they were going to be there for it. So we sold everything, gave it away or sold it, paid off all our debts, used the money that we got to go to Israel. We only had what we could carry in a backpack on our backs. Adair's oldest son was nine at the time. I don't know anybody that I think could actually do what my parents did because it was, it was huge. And here's the thing. The plan wasn't just to, you know, get an apartment in Tel Aviv and wait for the end time fireworks. The plan was to actually help move things along. 
And the biggest piece of that was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the center of the Holy of Holies. It's God's seat on earth is what it is. And it's a golden box and it has two angels on it and it's all covered in gold and it has rods that go through it. So it can be carried by four priests when it's covered. And according to the Bible, at night there was a pillar of fire above it and during the day there was a pillar of smoke above it. We felt like it was key in the end days, you know, that that was going to come out and that was going to be one of the things that was going to bring about the beginning of the time of tribulation in the last days. What do you mean come out? You mean that somebody was it's going to... It's hidden somewhere right now. Be rediscovered. Be rediscovered, yeah. You guys were looking for it. Yeah. We looked for it, and that was quite the adventure, too. But I was going to mention about the... <laughs> How do you move on? You're like... <laughs> Okay, so we fly over to Jordan. It was a lot cheaper. Adair, her husband, and her three kids, each with newly biblical names. Mattia, age nine, Samora, age seven, and Yonatan, just a baby. The bus dropped us off on one side. We had to walk over the bridge that's there for this. It's over the Jordan River. Yeah, we had everything we took with us to Israel fit on our back. A tent? a couple sleeping bags, and not much else. And when we go over the border into Israel, we have absolutely no idea where we're going to stay. You know, you see these barren mountains going up. It's like, should we camp there? <laughs> is there water? Everything else is faith. You don't know what's coming after that. Mm-mm. We would just walk down the road hoping somebody would, you know, offer us a place to sleep. They bed down in caves and open fields and anywhere with shelter for a night. There was a really old church on top of the hill. We lived in their cemetery. You know, that was a couple of nights we lived. Um, we lived in the Jerusalem forest, just camping. You I mean, it was just one day at a time. You know, find somewhere to sleep tonight and worry about tomorrow night then. What? It sounds irresponsible, doesn't it? <laughs> they read and reread the Bible over and over and begin to follow it line by line. So that's where we found in Revelation that it says, buy of me white raiment. What is raiment? Gowns, robes. So you guys started dressing differently. Yeah, we dressed in white robes the whole time. Almost the whole time we were there. We just bought 100% pure white linen and I hand sewed them. And everything so we, was handmade. Everything was handmade and hand washed. And they were all white in a very dirty place in caves and stuff. So it was. Yeah, not super sensible to be wearing. No, that's by faith. Yeah, <laughs> that is faith right there. Something is reasonable. You don't need faith. You only need faith if it's something that you wouldn't do otherwise. Roaming the desert, looking like characters out of the Ten Commandments. In that bus that dropped them off at the border, it's pretty much the last motorized anything they would take. No buses in the Bible, no buses for them. And we walked everywhere with our animals along the side of the road. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. What are your traveling animals? Mostly donkeys, because they can handle traffic better than horses can. But um, Camels. And camels. So you rode donkeys and camels to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That must have just felt epic. (laughs) (laughs) living a life unrecognizable from just a few weeks before. Legally, they're allowed in Israel for only a couple months. And so they double down on the already enormous bet they had taken, and they burn their passports. Now, they're on the run, 
running from immigration officials and running toward the end that they are absolutely sure is right around the corner. But they don't find the end. They find something else entirely that changes the way they look at everything. That's next time on Surviving Y2K. With New Year's only weeks away, things in Israel are getting hairy. The fears that some might try to force God's hand has, uh, has security concerns. And the hunt for the Ark is on. It was always feeling like you're right on the verge of the discovery. I don't know how we stayed safe. That whole faith thing seemed to... Test the limits. And then, my millennium story. My end of the world. And you're a married man on a business trip. I'm a married man on a business trip. It's over in like 10 seconds. <laughs> and then, of course, you just want to get, I, you just, you just want to run. And later this season, Dave Eddy. I was pissed. Bob blah, blah. You got conned, and I told you so. And now, Susan and Tom, as their post apocalyptic nightmare comes true. There's no apocalypse. You, sir, were a nut job for getting ready for Y2K. You're a nut job. But maybe all that preparing wasn't so crazy after all. That's how, why you were sitting in this room still alive, speaking to you. Headlong Surviving Y2K is produced by Henry Malofsky. And me, I'm Dan Tabersky. Our associate producers are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Ben Phelan. Ben also does research and fact-checking. Joel Lovell is our editor. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our theme song is Burns by George Fitzgerald, courtesy of Domino Recording and Publishing Company. Music clearance by Dan Kanishkoe. This episode was mixed by Martin Johnson at Soundtelling in Sweden. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Lita Malad and Lisa Leingang. Special thanks to Adam Pincus. You can also find Headlong on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us and check out more podcasts from Topic at topic.com slash podcasts. Hey, quick favor. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes. It means a lot to me, and it's also a nice way to let other people discover the show. Thanks. And finally, what's your Y2K story? we set up a special voicemail for you to tell me. Call us at 949-639-9Y2K and leave me a message and tell me a story and we may just use it on the show. That's 949-639-9925. And we'll see you back here next week when the millennium is only days away. If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash headlong and use promo code HEADLONG.